those are two pretty common beliefs of Christianity. You helped me breathe and you died for me. Um, I don't know about you. I, I tend to run quickly to the Jesus died for me piece of, of the Christian worldview and, and rightly so that we would run there. Um, if I'm honest, in my middle-class suburban reality, you help me breathe doesn't quite uh, feel so um, significant or weighty in my own mind, in my own heart on a, on a daily basis. And yet I was thinking as I was standing there getting ready to preach this morning that over the last four months, I, I can say definitively, I mean, there have been some hard days the last four months. And I think that would be true if we were honest of many of us. Um, and the fact that I'm standing here today praising the living God is because he has helped me to breathe and sustained me to this moment. Um, and I trust that he will do that as we forge ahead in this weird, crazy year called 2020. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church, the guy who gets to preach most weeks. It's the privilege of opening up the scriptures as we come together, both lawn and live stream as it stands in this season. Uh, speaking of preaching, spe- speaking of God's word, if you have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be in verses 11 through 21 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you if you have a digital device to, to go to esv.org. Uh, you'll find uh, a version, uh, an online version of the translation that we'll be using this morning to walk through this passage of Scripture. In addition, uh, as of a couple weeks ago, we've started to implement sermon slides and make those accessible to you. So if you're a visual learner, you can go to that same link on our website, go to the homepage, click on that connect guide where the lyrics are accessible and right up under that clickable link for lyrics, you'll find a clickable link for sermon slides and you can kind of track with what would typically be up on the screen behind me if we were gathering in our auditorium this morning. Let me, uh, let me go ahead and pray for us and, and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would edify your people this morning with with divine truth, myself included. I pray that you would refresh us. I pray that you would convict us. I pray that you would comfort us, that you would give us what we need. I pray that you would ultimately fill us with an overwhelming sense of the beauty of Christ and the sufficiency of your grace that, that we might all walk away this morning transformed. I invite you now to attend the preaching of your word in power. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. So we're, we're down to the final three sermons of, of this sermon series, this journey through the book of 2 Corinthians. Three weeks from now, we're going to dive into a new sermon series. So if you're coming in new this morning, you're like, oh, great. I came right at the back end of a sermon series you guys have been walking through for a while. This should be fantastic. Uh, three weeks from now, we're going to walk through a 15-week series that'll carry us through the fall through... Psalms 120 through 134, which are known as the Songs of Ascent. The, basically, the iPod playlist, the Spotify playlist for the people of God as they would make their way toward Jerusalem for the major feasts throughout the year. And, and we're going to see in that series that uh, God has much for us that carries forth to present day, that, that that's the playlist of discipleship for us as the church. So be, be excited or encouraged about that to come a few weeks from now. But for now, we're going to finish out this great book of the Bible known as 2 Corinthians, a book, as you, you've seen if you've been around from the beginning, filled with paradox. We've seen things like Paul talk about comfort in affliction, richness in poverty, strength in weakness, 
arguably the, the most emotional of, of Paul's letters, as we've seen throughout the course of this series. Sam Storms, in his commentary, says this about 2 Corinthians at large. He says, 2 Corinthians is a vivid, often painful portrayal of the courage, honesty, and vulnerability of the Apostle Paul. More so than in any of his other letters, in 2 Corinthians, we hear his heart beat, we feel his passions, we are put in touch with his deepest fears and longings and loves. If one is looking for a paradigm of pastoral sensitivity and strength, of unyielding commitment to truth and purity together with compassion and profound concern for his converts, this is the place. Look no further, he says. We, we've been in the, the final section of this highly emotional letter for several weeks now as Paul takes the better part of the last four chapters of this book of the Bible to address those who have essentially resisted his authority over the church. Paul was being scrutinized on the basis of his weaknesses, his lack of charisma, his less than impressive public speaking skills, things seen by his opponents as disqualifying as they struggled to get their, their mind around this idea of God's strength made perfect in weakness. Paul looks out on, on this church being tempted to veer away, to use his own words, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ through the, the teaching of false apostles masquerading in sheep's clothing, those seeking to destroy the work of the gospel in the name of the gospel, those seeking to lure people to another Jesus in the name of Jesus. And so, as we've seen for weeks now, Paul's tactic is to assume the role of a fool, not only in order to expose the foolishness and lies of these false teachers, but, but also to preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we pick up in chapter 12, verse 11, Paul says this. He says, I've been a fool. You forced me to it. For, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. Back in chapter 3, for those of you who were around for the entirety of this series, Paul referred to the saints in Corinth there in that chapter as his letter of recommendation living, breathing endorsements of his credibility as an apostle, you might say. So that the, the transforming work of the gospel in their very lives was an affirmation of the apostolic authority given to Paul by God. That those who, who should have been commending Paul, chapter 3, were questioning him, chapter 12. Having been deceived by these super apostles, as Paul refers to them, that's the same language, that super apostle language that Paul used just a chapter ago in chapter 11 where he addressed his opponent's fixation on style over substance, something that is still prevalent in, in the church today. Going back to, to just a few weeks ago, his opponents were saying chapter 10, verse 10, his letters, Paul's letters, they're weighty, they're strong, but his bodily presence, it's weak. And his speech, it's of no account. Paul understood himself not to be the most eloquent communicator on the planet according to the, the teachings and the practice of Greco-Roman rhetoric. And yet, at the same time, Paul also understood himself to be inferior to no one when it came to knowledge of the scriptures and truth of the gospel. His teaching, if you've read anything of his writings in, in scripture, they're incredibly clear and undeniably orthodox. And along with his teaching, his life was a testimony of the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
At the same time, he had the humility to declare himself nothing apart from the grace of God. Going back to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, For I'm the least of the apostles. That's the man who saw the, the risen Jesus on the road to, the, to Damascus. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, he says, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Right? Paul understood that everything good in his life was owing to God's grace, which is what freed Paul up to boast in his weaknesses, which we've seen him do for chapters now. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Chapter 4, verse 7 of the prequel, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it, as if you mustered it up in your own strength? He says it similarly in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. Paul, Paul's opponents, we talk about this a lot around here, particularly in the, the American South, if you want to still call it the Bible Belt, that Paul's opponents had two options, really, as, as all self-involved religious people do, namely pride or despair on the basis of how they were performing. Pride when they were checking all the right boxes, working their way through the religious checklist well, and despair when they were failing to do so. Perhaps you found yourself kind of dancing between those two polar extremes. And if that's you, can I just invite you into something more freeing this morning, namely the gospel? Because what the gospel does is it doesn't lead to pride, nor does it lead to despair, but rather it leads to this unique both and that you see in the life and teaching of the apostle Paul, a confident humility, the confidence to acknowledge who Paul is in Christ, to acknowledge the credibility of his calling, to not write that off. And at the same time, the humility to declare himself nothing apart from the grace of God. That's the free life. Paul goes on to say in verse 12, the signs of a, a true apostle, they were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. If you recall, if you were around for our study through uh, the book of Acts, Corinth is the city where Paul set up shop right next door to the Jewish synagogue in town and proceeded to lead the head rabbi to Jesus along with his entire family. That, that's, that's explicit intentional evangelism. It's the city where, where Paul spent roughly two years evangelizing unbelievers and discipling new Christians. He spent a, a lot of time in this community. Coming back to Chapter three, verses one through three, Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or, or do we need as some do letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves, you are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. Or as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? 
Are you not, here it is, my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Right? The, the work of the Holy Spirit was evident over that year and a half that Paul was in the city of Corinth in terms of his ministry, the conversion of, of so many people, the, the Spirit-filled gifting of the church to go back to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, not to mention the miraculous acts that accompanied Paul's proclamation of the gospel similar to Jesus Christ. Paul talks about that in Romans 15, verses 18 and 19, where he says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Here it is, by, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul's using, to come back to verse 12 of this morning's passage, he's using redemptive historical language here. The, the phrase signs and wonders, that's an Old Testament expression hearkening back to the story of the Exodus, the leading of the Israelites out of Egyptian enslavement on a journey to the promised land by way of the, the mighty hand and outstretched arm of the Lord, to use Old Testament language. Whereas the phrase mighty works in verse 12, that's a New Testament expression, hearkening back to the ministry of Jesus. You see that, that expression throughout the gospel accounts. So that what Paul's doing here, the language he's using in verse 12, it actually points to the Old Testament shadow and the New Testament fulfillment. The exodus from Egypt, God's freeing of Israel from Egyptian enslavement, and the greater exodus established by Jesus' blood, God's freeing of his people from enslavement to the greater chains of Satan, sin, and death. So that you could say that Paul's ministry, it's in continuity with redemptive history. That he's not out of step with what God's been doing for generations. But rather, he's in continuity with redemptive history and with redemptive history's heroic fulfillment, Jesus Christ, the one he proclaims. He goes on in verse 13 to say, For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. But what Paul's saying, we, we've seen this before in this letter. He's saying his only failure, quote unquote, was that he didn't ask the church in Corinth for money. It's a statement dripping with sarcasm. Going back to chapter 11, Paul saw an obstacle in the way of the gospel, particularly in the city of Corinth. Corinth was, was the land of oratory, the land of, of rhetoric, an urban city center where people leveraged their public speaking skills to make lots of money, to obtain a lot of Twitter followers. So that Paul saw need to distinguish himself from the profiteers that, that surrounded him, including the false apostles that he's been addressing here, seeking to lead the saints in Corinth astray. And so what, what did Paul do? He laid down his rights, refusing to accept financial support from the church in, in Corinth, removing perhaps one of the greatest obstacles to the gospel in that very city. That in a world where, in which lofty speech could be bought, Paul declared the gospel is not for sale. Which is why, as we've seen prior in this series, Paul supported himself by tent making when he first came to Corinth, in addition to raising support from other churches to, to subsidize his cost of living. 
He goes on to say in verses 14 through 18, Here for the third time I am ready to, to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Verse 17, did I, did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did, did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? There was this belief that Paul had been portraying himself as a man of integrity, a man willing to make tents for a living if necessary, all the while taking money from the offerings that he was collecting and selfishly padding his pockets, saving up for his private jet. Something that, that Paul already addressed back in chapter 8 where he made clear that he surrounded himself with trustworthy brothers in traveling with any sort of monetary donations as a way of ensuring that all was seen as above reproach not to, so as not to create an opportunity for, for anyone to bring disrepute on the gospel. Here in chapter 12, Paul looks to set the record straight once and for all. Declaring that his aim is to win the Corinthians over, not their money, not their property. He says, verse 14, for I seek not what is yours, but you, your souls. That's what I'm after, not your possessions, not your money. He said it this way back in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. He's talking about Jesus there to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But, I, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Like Paul deeply cares about this church to whom he's writing, like a father giving away his daughter on her wedding day. In this morning's passage, Paul uses that same kind of fatherly language pleading with his rebellious children, you might say, with the heart of a parent, declaring his willingness to spend and, and be spent for their joy and for their good. And notice, it's, he doesn't just say to spend and be spent, but to most gladly spend and be spent, not begrudgingly. Sounds a lot like Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, does it not? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That like Christ, Paul gave his life for the good of the very one seeking to tear him down. It's this beautiful picture of the gospel. James mentioned it just a few minutes ago. The, the, one of the most famous verses in this book of the Bible, chapter eight, verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for our sake as enemies of the cross of Christ, he became poor so that you and I by his poverty might become rich. Right? We sing it all the time around here. We'll sing it just a few moments from now to use this father-child language that Paul uses in this morning's passage. How deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure 
to make orphaned enemies, his sons, his daughters, no longer children of wrath, but, but children of God. If you're, if you're not a Christian, that's it. That, that's the takeaway this morning, that through the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can become a child of the living God. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was the perfect son who lived the perfect obedient life that none of us could live, that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice who died the sinner's death that we deserve to die, that because the father turned his face away from the son, he can turn his face toward us in love. And so I invite you, if you're not a Christian, to turn now to Jesus in faith and trust and know the joy of what it is to be a son or daughter of God. And if you are a Christian, and we talk about this a lot, it's a significant doctrine in scripture. We should. If you are a Christian, don't take lightly the glorious miracle, the wonder of what God's done in your life in making you a son, in making you a daughter. You have a heavenly father who loves you deeply. You're not a spiritual orphan. You don't have to dive into the dumpsters of depravity anymore. That God has something so much better for your life and for my life as a redeemed child of the living God. Which is what Paul alludes to in closing out this chapter. He says, uh, verses 19 through 21, he says, Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I read those slowly on purpose. I think we may need to hear some of those things this morning. Verse 21, he says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. It may come as a shock at this point to hear Paul say these words in light of everything that we've encountered up to this point in this series, but he, he essentially says the primary motivation for this letter, it's not my defending myself, but rather the edification of the church. Paul fears that, that he might not find the rebellious minority in Corinth as he wishes, but rather living in unrepentant sin and that they might not find Paul as they wish, but rather exercising judgment on his next visit in the name of Jesus Christ. He, he goes on to say, we'll see this next week, chapter 13, verse 10. For this reason, Paul says, I write these things while I'm away from you that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Right? Paul doesn't, he doesn't want that humbling and heartbreaking prospect to become a reality. Paul agonized as we've seen over and over again in this letter over the, the well-being of the churches that he had planted like a loving father agonizes over the waywardness of a prodigal son or daughter. So that this morning's passage, to use that, that father-son language, it's not only meant to awaken our hearts to the, the wonder of our adoption in Jesus Christ, that miracle, but also to stir our hearts to self-sacrificing love for the church, born out of Christ's self-sacrificing love for us. 
In other words, if I can say it this way, we've not only been brought in off the street and given a home and a name, but we've been invited into a life of significant, meaningful purpose. It's what the gospel does. It does a both and there. A life of spending and being spent like the apostle Paul for the glory of this redeeming God and Father and the edification and good of his people. Which if we can just be honest, is surely, surely a risk. It always has been. C.S. Lewis says, and I've shared this quote somewhere along the way before. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. So those of you with pets, you've already put yourself up, set yourself up for defeat, Lewis says. He goes on and says, wrap it, your heart carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, he says, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Paul, Paul knew the risk. Paul knew the vulnerability of self-sacrificing love, but, but he also knew a joy that cannot be known otherwise. Kent Hughes in his commentary, he says, love the church, serve her, spend and be spent, seek souls. And your heart, he says, will know an index of fears unknown to the uncommitted heart. But you will also know, he says, joys that are unknown to the self-serving. There's joy out there for the taking. The church has been sadly conditioned to fear risks, to run from anything that seems messy, anything that seems exhausting, anything that seems difficult to manage. And I would say this morning in closing, may that not be so. May, may God so capture our, our hearts with the wonder of our adoption in Jesus Christ that we've been made sons and daughters of God that there is no option, no other option than spending and being spent for his name's sake and, and the flourishing of his people, the church. And, and I would zoom that in on this church there's a call, an opportunity in light of what God's done in your life and my life, not just to be spent for, for the church, capital C, but to spend and be spent for this expression of Jesus's bride. You're, you're, you're significant, you're important in what God's doing in this community, in this family of faith. And so I, like the Apostle Paul, invite you into that to, to not only acknowledge who you are in Christ as a child of the living God, but, but to take your life as a child of God and to, to leverage it into fatherhood and motherhood and the family of faith to spending and being spent for the sake and good and flourishing of others in, in this church family. What a glorious book of the Bible this is. We're gonna, we're gonna continue to worship this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's redeemed us into a covenant family in a couple of ways, moving forward toward the end of this service, we're gonna sing to this God. I just invite you. 
particularly as we sing the last song, how deep the Father's love for us to consider that father-child language, what God has done in Jesus Christ to make you a son or daughter of the living God. Let's sing to this God. And also there will be an opportunity to receive communion. If you're with us on the lawn in person, there are tables on either side of the lawn. You're welcome if you haven't already to go and to pick up one of the cups and to, to take the bread when you're prepared to do so, representing the broken body of Jesus, to dip it in the cup, representing his shed blood. Before you do that, just invite you to pause and consider the wonder of what Jesus has done in bringing this miracle to pass in your life of bringing you into the adopted fold and family of God.